Zook Binders is the go-to album company for professional photographers looking for a high-quality partner. For 26 years, they've been servicing mid- to high-end studios like Washington Photo and complement this with a full suite of services such as album design, image selection, photo editing, video editing, and website design. Visit them at zookbinders.com and listen to the podcast with their founder, Mark Zucker, on episodes 7 and 53. Next up on Visual Wow. No picture is worth a life or a limb. The key, though, is to be prepared. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Visual Wow. The podcast for people passionate about live events. We're obsessed with creating and capturing those wow moments. This is the place the top pros come to share their secrets. Now, here's your host, Jack Hartsman. Welcome back, Visual Rock community. I am Jack Hartsman, your host, and back with an old friend of mine who was on the broadcast several months ago, John Harrington, filmmaker, photographer, uh, a man who is going to tell us today about what it's like to find yourself in the middle of a uh, national uh, or domestic insurrection, January 6th, something I'm, I'm sure no one has heard anything about domestically or abroad. Uh, John, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Jack. Uh, look, man, we have been in a lot of contact with each other uh, throughout COVID. We are friends. We are colleagues. We are we are almost neighbors. Mm, yes. And uh, and you found yourself uh, who who a guy who I have known my whole career as a Capitol Hill photographer, always around politics. Uh, you found yourself right in the thick of it. January 6th at the United States Capitol. We're going to get into the documentary that you have created. But really, let's go and start at the beginning. You went down for an assignment yep. and you found yourself in the middle of, of world history. Uh, what, what was that? What was that all about? It was uh, I can. It was surreal uh, is, the, is the shortest words I can use to describe it. I uh, was down there. I'd started down at the Ellipse. Uh, fortunately, I had parked my car at Union Station with a colleague there and had made our way from Union Station down to the Ellipse, where the kind of rally was starting. There wasn't any kind of official march, but you kind of knew that it was going to happen. Got there and was covering some of the rally, not really interested in what was happening up on the stage. Uh, it tends to be kind of a very scripted, very organized, orchestrated uh, event, and I was more interested in kind of what was happening organically and, and amongst the crowd down there. The crowd there really kind of seemed fairly calm and quiet, uh, down at the ellipse with the White House as a backdrop as they kind of waited the, uh, the then president's remarks. Uh, but I knew they were going to process. I just had a feeling they were going to process down uh, Constitution Avenue or Pennsylvania Avenue towards the Capitol uh, for no other reason than to make their voices heard. For me, covering a, a protest or a march, you know, I've done it a hundred times plus over my career. Uh, every type of an event, every type of issue, cause, uh, has been a march from one part of D.C., typically ending at the Capitol, sometimes ending at the White House, but usually ending at the Capitol. And when I got to the Capitol and saw that some of the typical barriers or barricades that would normally preclude public access were broken through or non-existent anymore, that's when I started to kind of uh, get really concerned about what was happening at the Capitol and that things were a little going to be a little different uh, as I was kind of making my way up the steps in the direction of kind of getting closer to the building. So, so look, man, you, you have been working uh, on the Capitol grounds as long as I can remember. Uh, you, you're a veteran guy of this world and of the goings on of D.C. politics, and you've been to the Capitol a bazillion times. At some point, 
you know, we've both shot events in our careers where something out of the ordinary, you know, happened, right? The chandelier fell from the ceiling, the buffet table got knocked over, somebody said something they weren't supposed to say, but but clearly no one had any idea uh, what, what was going to come of that. And at some point you must have engaged, your brain must have said, holy crap, John, what am I standing in the middle of? I, I, I can't even wrap my head around... Uh, I can't even wrap my head around what that must have been like when your brain started saying, okay, compose. I got to take pictures. I got to do video. I'm capturing this for world history, for world documentation. How do you process that information in the middle of something so volatile? So I don't even know the right, right, right words to use. Yeah. When I, when I first was making my way up those steps, I've covered eight inaugurations now, and the risers, the press risers, there's a center stand and there's a north and a south stand. Those stands are kind of very sacrosanct, very secure. Uh, they're installed just for the inauguration. And I know the center stand is very uh, is a, is a very secure, tall structure that they put kind of right in the middle of that capital area. When I walked up to that area and I saw that people were up on top of that center stand, that was kind of my first indication that things were a little over the top. I actually sent a photo to one of the one of the one of the my colleagues inside the Capitol, just saying with kind of a caption saying, uh, "I'm not sure this is the way it's supposed to be," and I got an affirmation back, you know, "Definitely not!" Exclamation point or something like that. Right. I mean, I have been through so many inaugurations like you, where I was working on the Hargrove side of things when they were doing installations when the. Uh, architects of the Capitol were installing those things. And I'm thinking to myself, holy gosh, it's it's three weeks before inauguration, two weeks before inauguration, and they may not be secured yet. Right. And, and yeah. I was I was terrified mm -hmm. that I was going to see those bleachers come tumbling down or the center tower literally crashing down and killing people. Mm. That was before we actually saw them breach the security walls. Right. And yeah, well, when, and so I sent that photo and I thought, well, that's unusual, but, you know, it is what it is, right? It's just, a, it's a rowdy group at that point. The next thing that, it, where I really started to worry, uh, and kind of if you're looking for what kind of indicator points you know, were going off in my brain, uh, as far as where things were way different than ever before, was when the first kind of flashbang tear grass grenade went off over me. At that point, I said, all right, game on. I mean, you know, this is where it's going to get crazy, and it's only going to get crazier. And so I kind of turned around uh, up against a kind of a small or brick wall and took a knee, grabbed into my backpack. And at that point, you know, my only, my initial concern was the tear gas. So I put on the gas mask. I didn't actually put the helmet on at that point, uh, the ballistic helmet. And uh, started making my way through the crowd and seeing people, you know, clearing tear gas and, you know, out of their face with water or milk or what have you. And uh, I knew that I, I wanted to get up to the front line uh, to identify kind of what was happening between the protesters and law enforcement uh, at that point. And then I start seeing more flashbang grenades go off and, and things being thrown from behind me over into where the police were. And I've seen that a few times before at World Bank protests. So I thought, well, that's pretty aggressive for being on the Capitol grounds. Right. But it wasn't until I kind of got all the way over to the side where I could kind of have my back, you know, so when you're doing something like this, you, in a, in a threat situation, 
you know, you, you have your own 360 degree perimeter around you to worry about. And the biggest concern for you is what's happening behind you because you don't know. So that's why a lot of times when you see the military uh, go into an unknown situation, they have one of them walking forwards, you know, with their weapon out and one of them walking backwards. So they're back to back looking backwards. So you can kind of cover your entire 360 around you. I did my colleague, um, my friend Mark had gone off and was nearby, but not right next to me. So I knew that I needed to kind of cover my, my backside, my 180, and went over to right where the, the stands were and the stone was to kind of identify and minimize my, you know, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, my exposure, uh, quite literally, to the back of me and my backside. And so I could focus just on what was happening in the, the, the front purview of where I was. And I was able to really see what was going on because on one hand on the left side and left side, I had the law, uh, law enforcement response in, the, in their perimeter line. And then the right side was all of the, uh, the, the crowd. Now, for those who don't know you, I, I stand a, a humble five, seven and a half inches and you stand almost a foot taller than me. Yeah. You, you are not a short person by any stretch of the imagination. And I've... Right. I've enjoyed having you as a tall friend when we're shooting side by side. Right. You tower over most people. And and I couldn't help but think with you down there, yeah. I, I hate to use the coin, the phrase, you, you had a, a very different perspective than a lot of the little people amongst, uh, you know, the masses, what, what, regardless whether you're on the law enforcement side or on the protest side. And, and, and then there's the other factor that we deal with as photographers when we're in the middle of un- unexpected, like... Oh my God, I'm walking around with $20,000 of gear on my body. Right. And, and I might be, I might be underestimating that when I say that. And, and one of the things that ripped my soul as many times as I've shot on those same Capitol grounds is watching the desecration of our, of our friends and our colleagues Mm -hmm. in the media, literally watching people smashing, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of media equipment, light stands and lights and cameras and, and, and emptying out Pelican cases and stuff like that. I can only imagine how you were holding on to your gear at every aspect of your person. Yeah. I, I, for my height. So yeah, you're right. I'm six, seven. I actually also found a, a, a four inch kind of stone riser that I could step up on. So I actually got myself up to kind of that seven foot mark. Um, cause I really wanted to get as much of a overview of the crowd as I could, but still have my equipment right here. And I was using the cameras I were using were my Sony cameras, which have the kind of tilt out back screen. So I could actually keep my head down and be looking at the screen while I was shooting or sh- switching over to shooting stills. I was shooting video or shooting stills and, and not, and that gave me also kind of a, 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 a the ability to, also had to be situationally aware because I wasn't stuck right behind the camera. Uh, I was able to see around a much more, you know, kind of what was going on to my right or, or, or you know, in front of me, uh, right ahead of me. So, and, and, and let me ask you, as all this craziness is going on, you probably know many of the law enforcement there by face, if not by name and by face, you get past the surreal moment of, of, you know, after minute 10, minute 20, minute hour, uh, you, you realize this isn't going backwards. This is only moving forward and, 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 and uh, the aggressions get even, even more. Did, did you go inside the Capitol? Did you follow the masses or did you stay outside? 
I did not. Uh, So um, I do know some of the law enforcement that are up there, uh, but everyone up there uh, that I could was up really proximal to were all in full riot gear and masks. So anyone that I might have recognized would have had to have been by name. And there weren't that many folks that I recognized uh, that day. Uh, So I was kind of uh, out there without that kind of familiarity. I made a conscious choice not to go into the building. Uh, Some of the areas that they were traversing through were, uh, were constricted areas. Uh, They, uh, in the, when you talk about military, they talk about like, kind of like kill zone or kill alleys where the threat to you is much greater. I had people threatening me that day uh, to move or to stop filming um, and you better be on our side uh, and so on and so forth. Um, But I, I didn't, there's two things that were, I was thinking about. One was I'm going into a situation. If I go down this path, up these stairs, uh, in the direction of going through one of the doors, uh, I'm putting myself at some really significant risk. And I didn't want to risk what I knew I already had. If someone was going to take my camera or cameras away uh, with the memory cards in it, even if I was switching out memory cards, uh, then I'm still running a risk of, of, of having them take the equipment In addition, you know, there was another part of me that was kind of as a doing this mental calculus in my head was, well, there's no way they're going to get into the building. You know, they'll get up to the doors and that'll be that. Uh, So so that was part of the calculus, believing that that was the case. And obviously it wasn't. They did get in. But I was, you know, my safety was, you know, in that calculus, you are factoring in your own safety. And, And I definitely was doing that. I, I listen. I knew you were down there, and and um, I I was like the photojournalist who wasn't on assignment that day. Colleagues of mine, we had discussed about about going down there and uh, and see what was up, and and we just said, you know, there's something that just didn't feel right about that particular day, uh, and and so I, I give you huge props for a being down there and and keeping your head about you. I, I would have to say that. It try to put myself into your shoes, uh, exceptionally large shoes, I might add, uh, how you just made the decision of when to shoot stills and when to shoot video. And, and I ask you that question because we're going to talk about what you have done since January 6th and what you've done with right. the footage. How in the world did you, did you make the decision when to flip the switch and go, and go video from stills? Because you're a still guy by, by trade. I mean, I, I've known sure. you my whole life as a still photographer. Right, sure. Um, how, how did you... God, juggle, juggle motion and still. Well, that one of the challenges as a photographer is that it is next to impossible to shoot both video and stills well. In, in almost every situation, uh, one or the other suffers. I'm going to quote you on that, by the way, for every mother of the bride that says, to me, well, can't you just shoot video and stills at the same time? No, it's yeah. next to impossible. So, but I tried to hedge my bets in the best direction that I could. So the chip size is, you know, I don't know, 20 megapixels or what have you. So, you know, when you're doing a still photo, you're getting that full breadth and depth of the, of the chip. When you're shooting 4K video, you have 4,000 pixels. You're essentially regressing your technology back to among, you know, like the first digital camera kind of thing. And so you, you want to be really cognizant uh, that you're doing that. But in addition, you know, we talk about, 
video, kind of like the common mindset is, you know, it's 30 frames a second, a 30th of a second, you know, each frame. So right. everyone's going to be naturally blurred. But I made the, the decision uh, to try to maximize my still, my still image from video capability to, uh, to shoot at a much higher shutter speed. So that kind of each one of those 30 frames was 250th of a second or something like that. So that stopped the motion and you could actually right. grab a still if you had to. Right. And, you know, you got to be careful when you're doing that because you dial up that shutter speed too much and it starts to look bad on video. Right. Uh, and so there's this balance that you need to strike when you're doing that. That being said, uh, you know, as I was shooting the video, I was trying to shoot. I was shooting with a mindset that, Time was of the essence to get this out. So yes, I could have just rolled nonstop and had a you know thirty minute video clip or two hour video clip or whatever. But I was shooting in you know fifteen and thirty sixty second increments, and then stopping and then waiting for something to change. And if the opportunity presented itself while I had stopped, then I would switch over real quick to still make some still frames of some of the action. Uh, and then switch back to video because uh, that day for that day, my, my focus was video, but I knew I needed to have uh, the still capability from it. So in full disclosure, I knew you as a Nikon guy. I'm a Canon guy. You made the jump to Sony. Correct. Um, you know, the visual Wild podcast is really focused on live event stuff all the time mm -hmm. with an emphasis on photography uh, on Fridays. Why don't we get just a little geeky for a second? Sure. Uh, let's talk about what gear you're actually using, what Sony cameras, and then we can spar a little bit on uh, that that jump you were just talking about, shooting a 250th of a second with video, and how much more challenging that is when you're in an outdoor environment like you were versus if you were indoors shooting like a some kind of presentation in a dimly lit room mm -hmm. uh, under normal podium, if you will, podium lighting. Right. Let's start off with uh, what was your camera body configurations, your lenses you were using, just, just so we can stay a little geeky and talk photography. Sure. So I did an entire kind of behind the scenes video afterwards. Um, not from there, but the same equipment I used for the inauguration, which for the day uh, the, on the 6th was the two, two Sony A7 III's, uh, which I love. They totally held up for me and did a great job. Uh, 16 to 35, I think was my, uh, my lens, the, the wide one. And then the 24 to 70 was the other one. And I think, I'm trying to remember, I think I had my 70 to 200 in the bottom of my backpack with my helmet and my mask, along with some extra batteries. But that was about it. Uh, the, the A7 III, two A7 III's and the 16 to 35 and the 24 to 70. And uh, I knew that, you know, there's this old, uh, uh, old adage that it's, if it's not good enough, you're not close enough. And I really felt I was close enough because I spent a good portion of what I was shooting at the 16, 16 to 20 millimeter mark. Right. Uh, there's a few, few tighter lip shots in there, but uh, the vast majority of it was that very, very wide stuff to really kind of, with the intention of really putting you there, making you feel like you're there. So, so uh, that's our little plug for Sony and the uh, and the A7 III. Kudos to Sony. And uh, get then, an A1. Maybe one day I'll get an A1 or A92. Uh, but right now I'm happy with my A7 III. Copy that. Copy that. So then, so then let's let's talk about those who are still photographers. They've got the video switch on their camera. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what the manufacturer is. But when you're shooting indoors and you're in that thousand to twenty five hundred ISO range. Uh, what you're doing with your shutter speed uh, on a still camera 
when you make that jump to video, you tend to be in that 30 to 60, maybe 125 mark uh, at the very highest when you're shooting video indoors. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I think most people recommend, <coughs> excuse me, that, you know, your shutter speed should essentially be double your frame rate. So if your frame rate is, you know, the, most frame rates are 24 or 30. Uh, and so if you're, you know, 60 of a second is probably a pretty good shutter speed uh, on the kind of geeking out techno technology side of this. Um, but if you've got to go low, uh, you go into a 30th and that's what you'll end up doing. You, um, it'll be it'll be fine in video, I think. But but you know, if you can get to a 60th or a 125th, you're going to be better off. You, that means you're going to have to crank up your ISO. And I, I don't know what brightly lit buildings you've been shooting in, but I spend a lot of time when I'm doing still stuff indoors at a at 5,000 and 7,500, right. 10,000 ISO these days. Right. So I kind of well, laugh laugh looking back at the old Fuji Press film days when I was at 800 ISO and cringing at, at my grain. Um, relative to shooting in the 10,000 ISO range. Well, it's, uh, it's, funny you, it's funny you say that because during COVID, you know, we've all been cleaning up our houses and our offices. And I found some of my old sample books from, from the nineties. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was just gazing through some old pictures from the big venues, you know, the national building museum and yep. Kennedy center and things like that. And, and one of my younger photographers was over and they were looking at the pictures with me and they're like, Oh my God, why are, why is it so dark in there? And I'm like, it's not dark in there. It's a, I only I was limited to 400 speed film. Right. And that was as far as I could go. Right. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, 400 speed film. We, we couldn't crank up to 6,000 ISO. It didn't no. exist. Right. So tell me what your challenge is. We'll stay on the geeky part for just one more moment. At a 250 shutter speed, uh, you must have been shooting outside at a very low ISO, and you were probably still being challenged with uh, with overexposing were you dealing with neutral density filters how did you overcome the bright sunlight so uh, that's the beauty that was kind of the from a technological standpoint the beauty of the day it was extremely overcast it was kind of bluish skies uh at when it started at the rally but by the time we got to the capital it was almost completely overcast which as you know uh lends itself to really flat really shadowless light uh and so uh you know I always love shadowless uh, outdoor light, except for when I need a beautiful crisp blue sky, and then I curse it. Uh, so the the light really lent itself that day to reducing the shadows and allowing me to just have a. a I was much more, I was much less worried about my kind of my gamut, if you will, being over or underexposed because uh, I had that flat light. No, absolutely, and I always call that God's softbox that comes along and helps us out when we're mm -hmm. when we're outside. Um, listen, you've taken those images uh, and your stills, and my dogs seriously seem like they want to participate in our recording today. Yep. Um, you know, I, I was I was in New York on September 11th, and I was at the Pentagon. Yeah, yeah, you were at the Pentagon. I was I was in New York City, and for me. That's the closest I've ever been to what I presume you saw on January 6th. You were at the Pentagon on September 11th. I watched the World Trade Center fall. I remember watching the whole world running uptown, and I was running downtown in New York because I wanted to go towards the action. But after I shot, I shot about 500 stills that day, maybe more. I couldn't look at my work. Yeah. I, I focused my attention on a photograph that I took the night before on September 10th right. 
uh, of the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the last documented photographs, timestamp documented photographs of the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. I was shooting on the Hudson River the night before. But it took me a decade. I, I kid you not. Mm-hmm. It took me a decade to the 10th anniversary of September 11th. And I had to give the pictures to my son mm-hmm. to edit them because right. it was too close to me. Yeah, sure. Well, here we are in the first week of March. We're recording today on the 11th. I'm telling that to the listening audience because even though we're on Facebook Live right now and I'm going to show some pieces of your documentary that you're working on, we're going to air this on on March 19th, on Friday, March 19th. I want to know what it was like for you to crawl back into your computer hours or days later to start looking at this and and reliving it. Because I know I called you a day or two after when I was watching CNN and saw your byline on CNN Mm -hmm. for your video footage. Um, What was that like the emotions to go back and look at it? And now you've made a documentary out of it. How has this been emotionally and psychologically for you going through these, you know, reliving it over and over again? Sure. It's hard. No question. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I had to, you know, I stayed in touch with my, you know, with my better half and let her know that I was safe and okay uh, throughout the day as best I could. But I, you know, and I had to edit that night uh, to get stuff out that night. And so I was still kind of in that zone of like, not really processing what had transpired. And, uh, then I had, I spent the neck that, so I did that that night and got that out. And then the next day, um, was also, uh, talking to CNN and, um, a couple other, other entities, PBS ended up having it as well on news hour with Judy, uh, Judy Woodrup and, um, talking to them. And so I was still kind of in that mode where I hadn't allowed my brain to process it. And I think it was a couple of days later, I think probably after I talked to you that a few days later that I really kind of sat back and rewatched the clip. And that was kind of when it struck me kind of some of the, you know, the, the, the real severity of what had transpired. For the Facebook audience, I hope you got a chance to take a peek at that. It is powerful. John's links uh, to see his, uh, you can go to Vimeo.com slash John Harrington to see what this man is all about. I will put everything in the show notes for next week when this airs. Let's talk a little bit about how you took this documentary and, and what you're doing with it and, and what your expectations are now that you've put the whole thing together. Yeah. So I put together, uh, it was, I didn't go into it with the idea of producing a documentary per se. Uh, I went into it uh, with the need goal, the assignment to, to tell the story uh, about what was happening that day. And you never know if it's just going to be kind of a run-of-the-mill protest rally or if it's going to, you have no idea that it's going to be what it ended up being. But having that and having the continuity of that story, having the kind of uh, the, the calmness of the rally at the beginning, uh, which I include briefly, and then the, the, the core of that, and then at the end of the documentary, showing people getting arrested and kind of the calm that's restored at the end of the day uh, so that, you know, the will of the people, the, uh, the whole process could be resolved uh, as it was intended to be in the first place. So I, I, had, I had those as kind of three separate, which you will call packages, right? Uh, there was, I had an arrests and calm at dusk package, and then I had the rally march package, and then I had the insurrection package. 
And I thought about it for a while and I thought, you know, I actually have all three of the kind of components from an outdoor standpoint uh, of what transpired. I didn't want to bring in kind of any footage of what was happening inside the building. I didn't have it. I thought about, you know, licensing it or putting it in there. But for me, uh, I wanted to kind of stay true to what was happening outside the building as a way of telling that story. And so I I put it together as a documentary and uh, in documentary short. So it's like 12 or 13 minutes long and put it out there, uh, put it together and then uh, sent it off to a, a couple of film festivals and see where, see where it goes. I feel like people, you know, in today's kind of snippets of uh, what's happening in the news where everything is rapid fire, you get it for you know, a minute or two, you know, with talking heads, you know, providing commentary and talking over it. For me, kind of transporting you there, putting you there right in the mix so that you could see what was really transpiring and going on without the interference of a, of a, you know, a stand-up, without the interference of a voiceover or commentary of track trying to tell you what's happening. I feel like the voices of the people that were there uh, and, the, and some of the kind of uh, craziness is really not the fair word, but close no, enough. No, but, but it is a certain amount of craziness because... You know, like I said before, we've all done events where things did not exactly transpire the way we expected them to transpire, whether it was corporate or whether it was social. What you went through on January 6th, what we both went through at the Cap- at the Pentagon and at the World Trade Center on 9-11, <laughs> there's no expectations for that. There's no, there's no preparation for that. There's no, it, it's there and we, we capture images and we, we, we document life as we see it when we're in the thick of it. And so to kind of wrap this up um, and going back to the reason I brought you on the broadcast the first time many moons ago, you know, you're, you're an exceptionally well authored photographer. You, you have been in this game a long time. Uh, you've written the 800-page photographer's manual on basically how to be a photographer properly and all the pieces of the equations on a business and a personal level. John, what do you say to photographers today, whether they are photojournalist wannabes, whether they're weekend warriors? What do you say to a photographer about your experience? And, and if you ever find yourself in a position when the world is changing around you in real time, how to keep your composure and focus on what's in front of you. I think the most important thing is you always need to be worried about your own safety first. No picture is worth a life or a limb. The key though, is to be prepared to plan through your eventualities. Uh, Silly example in this particular instance you know, uh, my colleague and I, uh, Mark and I, knew that, uh, and Mark's pictures ended up in the Washington Post that day, uh, the Washington Post magazine that day. You know, we knew that, uh, we started where we knew we were going to end. So we put the car there, but we purposefully, for example, didn't put our car on the street nearby because there, you know, threats to the vehicle, someone could torch it or something like that. We also put it, you know, on the rooftop. Uh, parking part part of the Union Station parking garage, uh, which if you're not familiar is right next to the Capitol, but it also gives you a view of the Capitol. Uh, so if we you know we have a place to kind of retreat to if need be. That was great you know, thinking. Great thinking. Yeah. And you know always you know do you do I need it right? So what I needed that day was just what I brought plus some power bars and a little bit of water 
and uh, a water container that was refillable and extra batteries and memory cards. That was it. You know, you, you, you need to think about lightening your load because when you're standing there at the beginning of a day fresh with a good meal in you and, and uh, you know, you, you don't think about how am I going to feel five hours from now after having had to, you know, run with this equipment, um, can I do it? And uh, you were right, I'm, as you said in the beginning, not as young as I used to be, but still, you know, you still need to carry that equipment and do your job. And if you're someone who's just starting out, uh, you know, the, the key is to be prepared and to minimize your footprint. And, and I'll, g- I'll give you another example. You know, you see people uh, in situations and settings like that, you know, wearing body armor, you know, and the, and the adage kind of from a lot of people wearing body armor is, you know, uh, you've told people where not to shoot. And so, you know, my, the body armor that I had on was underneath my coat. Yes, it had the press markings. And if there had been a situation where I needed to be identified uh, on the body armor as such, I could do that front and back. Um, my helmet, you know, the ballistic helmet that I had also said press, but as I said, it I didn't bring that helmet out right away. I didn't, you know, want to immediately take, it was an aggressive enough stance to take to have the mask. I can't believe you even had that. I mean, just, just the, the fact that we had to, you had to prepare that way for what could be. Right. But I will tell you this in, in fairness. So I upgraded and got my new helmets, new armor, new masks in the summer. So my order for all of that equipment, you know, transpired, you know, months prior um, could I have used my old stuff? Yes. But, uh, I really felt it was time to upgrade. Uh, and a colleague of mine, um, I actually was talking to her yesterday was one of the people that got stabbed on the Hill and, you know, she was fine thanks to her body armor, but you know, all of the planning, you know, for what I was planning on was election day, uh, unrest, civil unrest. And, and I think that we still have potential civil unrest days ahead this summer, uh, for a variety of reasons that we don't have to get into right now. But, you know, you the key is to have the right tools to do it and to not go into a situation like that uh, unprepared and not having thought, you know, six ways to Sunday about uh, what your exit plan is. Do you have, you know, nourishment? Are you going to, you know, uh, you're going to collapse and become a burden to somebody else? Right. Uh, you know. So keeping it kind of human and the fact that we, we mentioned already that we're not 25 anymore, did you reach out to your girls? Did you did you call them? Did they did they know where you were? How, how did you deal with that human dad aspect of it? They did not until after I was you know uh, home and safe. You know sometimes there are things that you need to uh, you know kind of insulate people from right because they their worrying just creates were you know a distraction in your head. So you know you do, you know you. If you have a better half, a partner, you know, your spouse, you know, you let them know I'm going to be fine or I am fine or, you know, uh, I'll be okay. And then, uh, you know, but you don't, you know, there's people you don't need to unnecessarily worry about it. And, you know, especially if those people are helpless to do anything about it, just let them know after the fact, hey, I was there, I'm fine, you know. Well, listen, John, I think this is a feather in your cap that you didn't expect to have. It's a life memory that you will, uh, I'm sure, continue to share with us both in visuals and in words. Um, Again, today is March 11th. We're going to broadcast this around the 19th, I believe. Uh, I will have the links uh, to see your different components as well as the documentary itself. Uh, I wish you tremendous uh, success 
in the film festival entries that you've done. Uh, I think your perspective on this and your groundedness to to have kept your 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 wit about you in the in the gosh in the in the heat of what was going on around you. I, I I've had a little bit more of a bird's eye view of this than a lot of people have. Uh, I just think you've done a great job with it, and uh, kudos to you and, and how you kept your uh, kept your focus on the whole project. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. So as things go forward with the film festivals, things like that, I hope you come back and, and share some more with us. Sure. We, we could have done a whole nother episode on what it was like to be there for inauguration two weeks, two weeks later. Uh, and I would love to share that with the audience at another time. Yeah. Uh, but for now, my friend, John, I thank you so much for coming back on the program. Sure. Uh, please, uh, ladies and gentlemen, send us some feedback. Uh, Jack at visualwild.com. You can find out all about John Harrington. Pretty simple to spell. Uh, JohnHarrington.com. Uh, let us know what you think about the episode. Let us know what you think about the documentary. And uh, we certainly appreciate you tuning in. And I'm Jack Hartsman, your host, and we will see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, sir. Thanks for listening to Visual Wow. If you like what you heard, like us on Facebook, Twitter, and tell your friends. Go to visualwow.com for more info. If you didn't like what you heard, just keep it to yourself. Know a pro we should be talking to on the show? Drop us a line. Talk with you next time on Visual Wow.